All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to be with you again. I'm talking to you from New York City on this, the fourth day of February, 2020. Um, I'd like to remind you that I write a newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter and a monthly, and I try to pick the best junior exploration stocks that I can find, and I'm telling you, I'm quite excited, notwithstanding today's down day uh, in the gold market. I fi- I'm finding some very, very exciting stories, and uh, we'll be talking to Chris Taylor, uh, who is the president and CEO of one of those, Great Bear Resources. He'll be with me during the second uh, segment of today's show. So lots of exciting things to talk about. Miningstocks.com is where you can go to sign up for my letter. Uh, ChenPix.com for Chen Lin's letter, and he covers the mining sector and the biotech sector primarily. Those are his areas. And, of course, Michael Oliver, who we're really happy to say will be talking with us in just a minute or two. Um, Michael's uh, OliverMSA.com. It's where you need to go to catch up with Michael's work. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I'd like to encourage you to send along any comments you have positive or negative or something in between to questions for taylor at gmail.com questions the number four taylor at gmail.com and of course we must thank our sponsors because without them there would be no show our sponsors for this week irving resources sitka gold corp hannon metals novo resources great bear resources gatling exploration tristar gold resources and lion one metals i've titled today's show with quantitative easing to infinity is deflation even possible? Alistair McLeod, Michael Oliver, and Chris Taylor, as I mentioned, will be with me in just a minute. Today, uh, we pose that question, is deflation even possible? If governments can create endless amounts of money out of thin air, why should there ever be a deflationary depression? You might remember uh, President Clinton, was, when he was embroiled in his own impeachment process, questioned the meaning of the word is for Austrian economic thinkers like Alistair McLeod, who will be with us in the second half of today's show, to suggest that you have no monetary inflation when money is created out of thin air without limit by central bankers around the world is just as preposterous as President Clinton questioning the meaning of the word is. Yet there can be no denying that because of massive debt, which is growing much faster than income, there is reason to consider the possibility of a collapse of prices across the board, at least for a short time much as we saw in 2008-2009. But then we saw what happened. Trillions upon trillions of dollars were created out of nothing. Many, if not most of them, found their way not only to allow the financial markets to stabilize, 
but to explode higher to the latest financial market bubble in an even more precarious debt bubble and unstable situation than we had arguably before 2008. Alistair wrote in his uh, article, he wrote an article in January 23rd titled Irrational Fears of Deflation. And then on January 30th, he wrote another article titled Estimating the Shape of the Coming Crisis. So in the second half of today's show, we will ask Alistair to explain to us why we shouldn't worry about deflation when clearly prices collapse collapses uh, that hurt uh, a lot of people during 2000, 2008, 2009 is still fresh in the memory of many, then if deflation isn't something we should worry about, I want to ask him how he thinks this existing bubble will play out. So we'll get some of Alistair's thoughts on those questions. In the second segment, just after our first commercial break, Chris Taylor, the president and CEO of one of the most, if not the most, successful gold exploration companies will be with me. Uh, last year, 2019, they made a, a fantastic discovery. Uh, what has been amazing about this company's performance is the consistent drill success they've had. Already, the company has established wide disseminated gold mineralization, uh, wide intersections of, go- of, of uh, disseminated gold interse- uh, intersections of mineralization, and interspersed by high grade, very high grade uh, uh, sectors as well. So, and this is along a five kilometer long fault zone, which uh, already has the magnitude uh, potentially to compare with some of the larger, uh, better-known world quality mines, uh, quality mines, gold mines in the world. Um, so very, very, very exciting story there. Uh, we'll be talking to Chris in the second segment. Um, so Chris will be with us, but right now, um, and Alistair will be with us in the second half, and uh, right now, though, I'm really happy to tell you that, we're, that Michael Oliver is back with us again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jake. Good to be back. It's really good to be back, but these are strange markets, I would suggest. Uh, the equity markets last week looked like they may be in trouble, uh, but despite the coronavirus and all kinds of other troubling things going on around the world, the equity market's on a tear. What do you make of it? Well, I think it's time to uh, look at, at an element we don't look at usually in our reports. We don't deal with fundamentals too much. We're strictly technical. But mm-hmm. I do, uh, my background is I'm, I'm a libertarian, and yes. I've even written a book on the subject. But uh, right now, I think you've got to look at the politics of the day, because uh, whenever there is an assumption that is as large as the assumption that Trump has this thing in the bag, uh, and, and also the assumption that this is Trump's bull market, and he can uh-huh. take credit for it, uh-huh. uh, that is the largest, most solid assumption I've ever seen uh, that has implications for market uh, for bulls, for sentiment, uh-huh. and so forth. Uh, and even the Democrats think, you know, gosh, how can we stop this guy? He's got a bull stock market. Look at the good yeah. economy, quote, unquote. Uh, and th- there's a lot of falsehoods in that. And uh, whenever you have an assumption that's that popular, it is a, an assumption that is accompanying the bubble that is that big. Yeah. And this bubble didn't begin with Trump. Trump merely added three more years to it. I mean, what are we going to call 2009 through 2016, the Obama bull market? Right. No, I don't think Fox Business News was doing that then, but now it's no. Trump's <laughs> bull market. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we had a visual picture of the S&P 500 price chart. Without using price, we constructed a cartoon version of it uh, that looked like a plywood and plaster skyscraper. Mm-hmm. In other words, it wasn't no. made of concrete and steel. And mm-hmm. uh, on the outside of it were the faces of the various Fed governors along the, along the road, Bernanke and so forth, that helped yeah. sponsor this beast higher. 
And, you know, <clears throat> your other Alistair is talking about this issue of the inflation and the deflation issue. Uh, that rotates. We, we have constant monetary inflation. You know, since 1959, money supply doubles almost, M2 doubles almost every decade. Mm-hmm. And it goes somewhere. Now, sometimes in history, if you will study history, uh, it goes into stocks. Sometimes it goes into commodities. Sometimes it goes into real estate, if we recall mm-hmm. 2007 and eight. Uh, but they're bubbles, and they're created by monetary excess, artificial interest rates, and government policy. And frankly, as a libertarian standing outside of these two political parties that swing back yes. and forth, uh, I see little difference between uh, what Trump advocates on economics, which is a major mm-hmm. thing in human life, uh, in terms of monetary policy being aggressive, in terms of interest rates being lower than other nations' interest rates. Why? Because, mm-hmm. quote, we're number one. <clears throat> I don't see much difference between Paul Krugman and Trump's economic views, right. frankly. Uh, no. Yes, there's the window dressing of a tax cut, but otherwise he wants to spend money, take the deficit up, uh, infrastructure, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I see very little difference. But anyway, <clears throat> the, what had just happened in Iowa was very telling, because as we know, the Democrat Party, obviously they want to win, but they also know they're split. And of course, so is the Republican Party to some extent. You know, Trump took it over. It's mm-hmm. no longer an intellectual conservative party anymore. Now it's mm-hmm. the Trump Party. But the Democrat Party is... is Badly split. And I think the orthodoxy in the party definitely don't want Sanders to win. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that a day before the Iowa caucus, I think it was the, uh, uh, the main newspaper in Iowa has a poll every year, one day before yeah. the Des Moines uh, paper. And they didn't have it this year because they canceled it because uh, some, some errors might be in it and so forth and so on. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the same thing happened with the caucuses, effectively. In other yeah. words, they don't want to show Sanders winning this thing because yep. then it creates a problem for the hierarchy of the party. Uh, that party could get really badly split. Now, right now, the assumption, therefore, would be what? Ah, Trump's got this in the bag. The Democrat Party's split, you know, and so forth. Watch out for Bloomberg, though. Yeah. He's rising yeah. from above sharply on the charts uh, mm-hmm. as a, as a middleman. Uh, but the big assumption I think you've got to watch is the vulnerability of the stock market, because our work says, yeah, it's beating its chest and it looks great right now, but uh, momentum-wise it doesn't look great. It has massive structures to break below it. It started to break some of them this month, despite this rally today. Uh, and I think if you sneeze again on the S&P, like go back through the monthly low, which is, uh, was down at 33, 35, uh, 3235, excuse me, on the S&P, I think you're going to start to unwind it. And I think at that point, that most popular assumption out there that I've ever seen, political assumption that has market implications, could be burst. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems like it. You know, uh, Republicans, Fox uh, Business, Fox News, are all championing this wonderful um, economy. And I certainly, when we have David Stockman on this show, he's not blowing that horn. He doesn't buy it for a minute. Neither do I, frankly. I think a lot of that is, uh, you know, baked in by the statistics that governments are, in a self-serving manner, all administrations do it. Obama did it as well, bragging about the economy. And then in the meantime, you have a middle America that is just uh, replete with uh, with drug addiction and uh, and uh, unemployment and the people stopping to look for jobs. So things yeah, are not uh, what they're what they're cracked up to be this is not i am sorry to say i wish i could go along with the uh with the enthusiasm of the republicans but i have a hard time doing that as well michael uh with just about a minute and a half or so left here uh where does this leave gold 
Uh, I think gold is on the, on the way north. I think the key number to watch right now is simply a return to 1600 traded. That's the April contract. Uh, and we got up to 1582, uh, I think, last week on the close. Now we're back down uh, 20 bucks or so today. But it, stand back and look at it. You know, go back, go back to 2011, watch the drop, then the 2015 low at 1050. By the way, we've run spread charts on gold versus the S&P, in other words, relative yeah. performance. And you're not all that big of a difference. If you go back to the 2015 low in gold at 1054, I think it was, and look at it now, and go back to late 2015 when the S&P was also making a low uh, in January and February of 2016, and look at it now. Yeah, the S&P's beat gold, but not by all that much. And yet yeah. nobody notices that. All they see is this stellar bubble that goes on mm-hmm. forever uh, mm-hmm. and has the one assumption now under it that can't be burst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 and by the yeah, way, all those stats, you, the stats you mentioned that people yeah. look at, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the monthly issued type things. I've never yeah. seen a bull market top that started with big negative numbers. The uh-huh. negative numbers follow the market down. They don't take the market down. Yeah, good point. The market point. goes down, then the numbers change. Right, <laughs> not the other way around. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. The markets, uh, the markets lead the way. That's for sure, and the politicians uh, sort of fill in the gaps. Uh, they they have to eventually pay attention to reality, I suppose, to a certain extent. Anyway, you know, you mentioned uh, just looking at uh, a statistic that I wasn't aware of until just recently. Uh, one of our guests, uh, David McElveen, he pointed out on our show that gold actually outperformed Warren Buffett's uh, performance uh, during the first twenty years of this century. Uh, it's a, mm-hmm. a pretty amazing by by quite a large margin, actually. Just the, just gold yeah. bullion. Uh, yep. Incredible. So it just—it's not that gold has gained and it value. It suffered it's, a major bear market during that process. And yeah, that's right. Itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. All right, Michael. Well, th- um, we'll look forward well, thanks, to talking to you uh, very soon. And thanks again for your insights here. A little differently, uh, a little different from you today, but we'll look uh, probably to get back to your momentum and structural uh, viewpoints sometime in the near future. Thank you so much for those thoughts, Michael. Thank you, Jay. All right. All right, folks, well, we do have to go to break, but don't go away because Chris Taylor will be with me, and uh, he really has some exciting things to say. It's a down day for gold. might be a good day to pay attention uh, to Great Bear, which uh, Chris will talk to us about right after the break. Don't go away. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Gatling Exploration is aggressively expanding its 100% owned Larder Gold Project with three high-grade gold deposits located along the prolific Kirkland Larder Break in Ontario, Canada. 35,000 meters of drilling is underway and to date has now connected two of the three gold deposits and is aiming at connecting the third to create a 4.5 kilometer trend. Gatling trades under GTR on the TSX Venture and GATGF on the OTCQX. Visit www.gatlingexploration.com to learn more. 
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me another Taylor. His name is Chris Taylor, President and CEO of Great Bear uh, Resources. It's a company that, uh, well, you've heard about before, and you've heard from Chris a number of times before. One of the most exciting stories that I've been a part of and have invested in early on, I think we put it in our newsletter at somewhere around 30 cents in U.S. money. It's now around $6.5 in U.S. money, off its highs for sure. And, you know, you would think that maybe it's time to sell the stock, uh, making that kind of money. Uh, And I certainly have taken some profits, I must admit to that. But there is a certain number of shares that I've vowed to hang on to because I think there's a lot of upside beyond where it is now. And uh, maybe Chris can uh, either agree with me or disagree, but uh, that's the way I see it. Uh, Thanks for coming on again, Chris. Uh, Nice to speak with you again, Jay. It's really good to have you with me, and uh, well, it's really good to have successful people on the show. That's for sure. So it's that's an easy one. Um, you, you've uh, talked about your plans uh, for 2020, your exploration plans. Um, talk just a little bit about what they are and and why they are, why you're doing what you're planning to do this year. Well, effectively, uh, you know, we've been successful to date uh, with uh, Great Bear, and some people, uh, or many people, uh, you know, definitely pat me on the back and congratulate on how well uh, everybody's doing and how much money they've made. But the real question is, how big is the gold system that we are looking at here at our Dixie Project in Ontario, and what is that worth? And that's a hard question to answer, but it's a question that we're answering every day by drilling. And Great Bear is a great example of a company where I think uh, it's, it's over 90% of the capital that we raise uh, turns directly into drilled uh, meters uh, coming out of the ground. And that's mm-hmm. really, I think, one of the best metrics for how you can gauge how a company is generating shareholder value. And in our case, it's with, uh, it's with drilling and with the results that are generated to that drilling. So the question then is how much gold do we have? And I think uh, we're uh, beginning, I, I've been invited to all these conferences, like, uh, you know, I'm in London next week, I'm in New York uh, next week, I'm in Montreal. Uh, I was invited to a conference in uh, Amsterdam. I'm in Switzerland at some point in the near future. And uh, I'm getting asked to speak about uh, really what the comparables are to Great Bear's Discovery. And um, there is a, there is a deposit uh, in Canada, uh, which is known as the Hemlo Gold uh, Discovery. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was a discovery made in the early 1980s. And uh, in today's dollars, uh, it would certainly be worth uh, billions of dollars. And what... What attracted us uh, to that uh, discovery as a comparable to what we have found on the LP fault target at our Dixie project is very similar geology, these felsic volcanics and volcanoclastic rocks uh, in contact with these big uh, sediment units and all hosted by a big deformation zone. And we've been looking at that as a comparable because 
um, you know, in today's dollars, uh, the billions of dollars that were captured there, it's, it's now owned by a Barrick uh, Gold company who is now uh, still mining all these years later. Uh, we're looking for comparables with the same sort of size uh, or similar size potential and similar mineralization. It's one that we keep getting drawn to. So the drilling that we're doing now is designed to show uh, just how big the system might be at our Dixie project. Right, and as I understand it, uh, most of the focus now is on infill drilling within an area along the LP fault that is uh, just a little bit under five kilometers. Do I have that right? Yeah, and, and uh, that's exactly correct, Jay. And I, I was uh, on a phone call this morning with a very bright um, uh, sort of market commentator, another fellow that uh, basically follows the market in great detail, and he said, well, Chris, why do you keep uh, stepping out along this LP fault instead of defining the zones that you already have? And, and I said, well, can you, can you address that? And he said, well, you know, you've stepped out a kilometer and you've hit more gold, and then you step out another kilometer and you hit more gold. And my answer to him was to say, uh, effectively, it's the same zone. It looks very much like what we're dealing with is a multi-kilometer, um, you know, single zone. I think I think what we're seeing uh, in the drilling that we're doing is continuity of rock type, continuity of alteration, and continuity of mineralization over uh, many kilometers, and uh, that's very unusual. So that's really the crux of the discussions that I have these days, is to talk about something that doesn't have a lot of uh, sort of uh, comparables in terms of the size of its footprint, and that's really our job here over the course of 2020, is to show that those dots all connect, if they do, and uh, so far, so good and to show, um, you know, what that means for the potential value of uh, the, the, um, the property and the company. Okay, so the focus now is on coming up with a resource so people can start to see, you know, what that five kilometers might contain, right? What, what sort of grades and how many ounces of uh, uh, the metrics that you need to start, uh, to start uh, considering some economics, right? And so how soon might we get some of that infill, how, some of those in, infill drill results, Chris? Uh, you're coming up to uh, very soon. Uh, there'll be some uh, information presented to the market, and uh, I don't have an exact date for you, uh, but we've been drilling very aggressively uh, since about the 5th of uh, January when uh, the rigs started up after Christmas. So there's been four rigs uh, drilling, and it's going to five uh, very shortly. Um, what we're going to do is release the results in uh, by section. So there'll be a few drill holes at each location, at least a few, showing what the goal of distribution and continuity is in each area. And as those are strung together area to area across the kilometers over the course of the year, that'll give everybody a very good idea about the number of ounces in grade like you were alluding to. And we're aiming to get that initial resource uh, product uh, that disclosure into the market uh, somewhere about a year from now. It's just going to take us because it's a very big system. We probably have to drill 250 to 350 drill holes just across that one zone. And remember, there are other zones we found on the project too. Let's say that uh, main zone uh, is going to take us, uh, you know, um, hundreds of drill holes to define in that manner. So it's just time. What we're just doing is time, but we're continuing to step out and test new targets as well with one of the drill rigs, but it should be um, when you see results come out of Great Bear in 2020, um, the analysts and the other market commentators and anybody from a, a big mining company or whoever it is that has an interest in the story should be able to make those uh, sort of estimates for themselves as we mm-hmm. put the meat on the bones of what we're looking mm-hmm. at along LP fault there. 
Yeah, I would guess that's exactly right. They'll be watching to look for that continuity that you're uh, that that they're looking to see because everything has been so widely spaced now. Uh, but Chris, one of yeah. the things that has always impressed me so much, and one of the reasons I jumped on this early, I think Gwen Preston was the first one to bring it to the Metals Investor Forum. Right after that, as soon as I heard the story, I said, "This is really amazing because you're hitting on everything." And I made the crack that I don't remember this kind of consistency of hits since uh, Briex. Well, of course, that was a fraud, and there was a reason why they kept hitting there. But you've been hitting now, admittedly, uh, wide uh, step-outs, you know, long spaces in between each other. Uh, but when you hit that consistently on those wide space-outs, uh, spacings, is there any reason to think that there shouldn't be some continuity between those? I mean, like if, uh, you know, I guess we don't know until the drill, the, the truth machine comes back and tells us for sure. But it seems to me, as a as a layperson, uh, I mean, I would be very disappointed if there's not a great deal of continuity between those widely spaced drill uh, um, drill sites. Yeah, and that's everybody's uh, best due diligence point is to look at that uh, continuity to see if the gold zones hold together, and that's exactly yeah. what we're doing with the flow of results. And I think when you look at the type of system that this is in, it's not. Uh, these aren't a series of uh, dikes or, or veins. This is uh, effectively a, a, a fault zone that's so big it goes right down to the base of the continental crust, all the way down to the top of the Earth's mantle. So it's more than 14 kilometers deep, and it's uh, many kilometers long. And when you look at it, it's because it's so big and it's been sheared up so much that these gold-bearing fluids could get into it consistently over such a big area. So it's up, for, it's up, it's our job, Jay, uh, to drill it and to show you that that's the case. And I'm, as a geologist myself, who's looked at many, many projects. Sometimes things look good in an early stage and they look worse later on. In our mm-hmm. case, the more we drill, uh, the better it's been looking and the more we find. And I think uh, a little statistic I could share with you is that of approximately 100 drill holes that we've completed on the project now over the last couple of years, uh, only six of them don't have gold in them. And all, all of those six were not on target areas. They were just random targets. Uh, we tested, uh, you know, testing new ideas in various places. But I can't, I, I can't think of another project off of the top of my head that could drill across uh, many kilometers on a property. And, uh, you know, you have something like, I think it's uh, about a 90 to 95% success rate on hitting gold mineralization in the drill core on multiple targets over a big area. It's a function not of how wonderful we are as geologists. We're simply not that smart. It's a function, in fact, of, the, of this big shear zone hosted system that runs down the center of our property and has been an excellent uh, source uh, of access to these gold-bearing fluids. Yeah, well, it, it, I don't know about this uh, thing about how smart you are, but I, I do know that you looked at a, you looked at some ground that other people passed over many times in the past. So uh, I, I don't think um, I don't I, I don't know if modesty is uh, is required of you right now, Chris. I, I admire it, but in any event, one of your jobs also is to um, is to optimize shareholder value, and it seems to me you've done a remarkable job, you and your team. Uh, you've only got what fifty some million. How, how many shares out now? I didn't check before the show. I, I think fully diluted at fifty three million shares. That's incredible. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've done a forty five million shares. Yeah. With the extra, and you're, uh, you know, a few warrants and some options. Yep. 
And and the size of your drill program this year is how many how many meters you're going to drill and and you're fully funded I believe for it right? That's correct. It's a twenty one million dollar uh, Canadian exploration program, and uh, we're going to drill at least one hundred and ten thousand meters, so one hundred and ten kilometers of drill core. It's the second largest drill program in Canada, which means that it's one of the largest fully funded drill programs in the world right now. That's incredible. Oh, real quickly, I w- would like you to explain your spin-out. You're doing a 2% spin-out, and one of the things I've vowed is I'm going to hang on to my shares, every one of them, until uh, I get the, my spin-out, a 2% NSR spin-out. Explain quickly to our listeners why you're doing that. Well, we looked at the project and the data coming in and this, uh, you know, this hit rate that we've had with the uh, gold drilling, and, you know, we, we don't have crystal balls. We can't predict the future. And our biggest concern at this point, uh, which is odd to say, you know, I know we're confident, but we're, we're more concerned that, um, you know, uh, a, a big company comes to us and says, we really like what you're seeing. We want to buy it before you have a chance to build it up to its, you know, ultimate maximum value. And if they offered you, you know, a very significant premium as the board of the company and in shareholder interest, you know, at some point, at some level, you have to agree. And in, mm-hmm. in that case, uh, you lose control of the asset. But we are shareholders. Like, I'm a big shareholder of the company. The other board members are shareholders. Um, you know, we have friends and family and other associates as shareholders. It's, an, it's a family of shareholders that we want to maximize value for because we know, <laughs> we know these people and we want to benefit them. And it's also us. So we yeah. look at this royalty, and uh, this idea is a way to protect that value. You know, if we eventually lose control of the project and it becomes a large mine, the value of that royalty, we don't know what it is today. And today, because it's still a very early-stage discovery process, it's not worth too much in the, at the moment. But in the future, if, the, if it turns into a very large, uh, significant deposit that's in production, the value of that royalty could be similar to the value of Great Bear as an entire company today. So right. um, that's the kind of value we want our shareholders to benefit from. I mean, we think looking at it that the prospects for the project are very, very good, and we think that that's why ultimately it could be purchased from us. And in that event, this is a great way to keep that long-term exposure and to make sure after putting a decade of work into Great Bear to get it to the point of where it is now, we want to continue to benefit from it and we want all of our shareholder family to benefit from that future exposure. Those kind of royalties have been the basis for some of the biggest, most profitable uh, mining-related companies, these big royalty streaming companies that exist in our industry. Absolutely. One more thing I just want to mention to my to my listeners before we have to... Uh go to the next segment, but it, and that is that you've done a remarkable job, Chris, of explaining to lay people uh, what you're doing, the geology and, and, what you're, and the purpose for what you're doing. And you have, I know in the past you've had webinars in which they've been very, very helpful to me to follow and understand your, your ongoing program. Uh, do you expect to have any more of these webinars coming along anytime soon? Uh, I would say that we are now overdue. Uh, for another one of these uh, teach-in sessions. So it's a great idea. It's something that uh, we do on a regular basis. So I would look for news on that uh, in the near future. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that. Thanks so much for being with us, Chris, and we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. All the best in your travels. We'll look to talk to you soon. All right, Thanks folks. We, we do have to go now. Uh, don't go away. Alistair McLeod is with us today, and he always has a lot of great insights into the markets and why they're behaving the way they are. 
they may seem very mysterious to a lot of us, but uh, Alistair usually has some good explanations for what's going on underneath the surface. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what has been considered one of the best performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. TriStar Gold is a gold exploration and development company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol TSG and on the OTCQB under the symbol TSGZF. The large and growing gold resource at Castelo de Sanos Project is located in mining-friendly Pata State, Brazil. A recent $8 million investment from major mining company Royal Gold will advance the CDS project towards a feasibility study in 2020. TriStar Gold enjoys strong institutional shareholder support from groups like Gold 2000, RBC, Sun Valley, and U.S. Global. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have one of the more frequent guests on our show, Alistair McLeod, with us once again. And for those of you who aren't familiar with him, uh, I must tell you that he writes a weekly column that is a must-read if you really care to understand what's going on underneath the surface in the economy, why things are happening the way they are, at goldmoney.com. Goldmoney.com, Alistair writes every week, and there's a couple of those articles we want to talk to him about today. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. Always good to talk to you, and uh, I do want to talk to you about a couple of articles um, you've written the last couple of weeks. Uh, Irrational Fears of Deflation, I think was written uh, the next to last week of, the, uh, of January, and then the most recent one, Estimating the Shape of the Coming Crisis. Those are a couple of things I'd like to, to get you to talk about today, but before we get to that, I did want to I did want to congratulate you and your fellow British citizens on voting to depart the European Union. Could you take just a moment to let our listeners know why you think that's a good thing for Britain? Yeah, well, it's it's quite uh, interesting because this is actually my second independence. 
celebration. Uh -huh. The first was when I was um, a teenager in Kenya, uh, when Britain gave Kenya independence. Uh -huh. <laughs> and now we've got independence from the EU. Hooray! Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so uh, um, you know, I'm an old hand at this. But uh, no, I think, I mean, the good thing about it is that uh, we're no longer uh, tied uh, into uh, the regime of um, protectionism in mm -hmm. the EU. This is from obviously from the trade point of view. Mm -hmm. um, we now have between uh, now and uh, the end of the calendar year, in other words, December the 31st, to negotiate the terms of trade. Uh, the point being that we are already out of the EU. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this interim period, if you like, is, is, is uh, going to be quite important. The EU isn't going to be ready to start negotiating until um, uh, April because they, the negotiators have to consult with all the member states <laughs> to, to get the agree their agreement on their approach. But they have already given us an idea of um, how they're going to uh, tackle this. Um, Meanwhile, uh, Britain is, now has a government which is not frightened of uh, world trade terms. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, you'll hear the description that ideally we want Canada plus plus, which um, is free trade, basically, uh, on um, our current terms. Um, or alternatively, the Australian model. And the Australian model basically is... Um, uh, WTO terms. So, in other words, <laughs> we don't really don't mind one way or the other. And I think, I think there is a recognition, um, certainly by Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, who's his, ch his chief advisor, and also Michael Gove, who is de facto deputy prime minister, that um, free trade is actually what we really want, and their objective is for Britain to lead the world in returning to free trade. So in a sense, we're going against, if you like, American policy uh, aimed at China and American policy as it will be aimed, I guess, at uh, the EU. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we'll look forward. It's a, it's a very, very interesting development, certainly, and, and one that's not just, uh, uh, just occurring in Britain. It seems to be a, a desire to... Uh, uh, to sort of separate from the larger body politic in a number of places, right? And uh, various countries within the EU are also kicking up their heels a bit. And, of course, we had Donald Trump here as well. It all seems to be more for localized politics and uh, where people have more control of their own destiny, I guess you'd say. And uh, Yes, something... I, th I, th I think members of the EU are um, more upset with the mm -hmm. impositions upon them from Brussels. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for various reasons. I mean, the Italians, for example, continually want more money, and when they don't get it, they scream blue murder. <laughs> the Germans have the problem that their savings are being trashed all the time, so they're unhappy as well. It's not a happy ship. They've got yeah. different reasons, uh, yeah. but actually very few of them are interested in free trade. Uh, you know, this is something that, that, that is essentially a British uh, approach to, to trade. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's get on to the, the topic of, of today. Then, um, irrational fears of deflation. Article that you wrote, and then uh, after that, estimating the shape of the coming crisis. I would perhaps like to start out by asking you to define uh, your definition. Uh, I, I believe is an Austrian school definition of inflation or deflation. 
Yes, well, inflation, quite simply, is an increase in the quantity of money in circulation. Mm -hmm. Deflation is the reverse of that. But obviously, there are, um, uh, if you like, there are symptoms that arise from changes in the quantity of money in, in circulation. Assuming it is imposed on the people by the state, inflation obviously leads to uh, a lower purchasing power for each unit of currency in circulation, which uh, commonly we express in a rise in price inflation. Mm -hmm. Deflation um, uh, leads inevitably to a tendency for prices to tend to fall. But you needn't actually have much deflation in, uh, you needn't even have any deflation in the quantity of money for prices to fall over time. And this basically was the uh, situation in the 19th century for Britain, when mm -hmm. prices fell um, over the whole period from really the, the aftermath of Waterloo to the First World War. Um, not only did prices fall, but uh, the, the quantity and variety of goods over that period expanded very, very substantially. And another key element of, of that time was uh, they did away with tariffs and we had free trade. And that meant that this country, uh, with minimal government intervention, became the most powerful nation in the history of mankind. I mean, more than the Roman Empire in terms of its extent. Mm -hmm. The Industrial Revolution that we saw was really quite remarkable, and it depended on people being able to create wealth for themselves and keep it and build on it. Mm -hmm. And of course, the socialism after uh, the First World War uh, has gradually destroyed that. Uh, and essentially, inflation is something that suits government. It does not suit you and I as ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the best way at, at looking at deflation and why deflation has got such a, uh, a, a bad name. It's got a bad name from uh, inflationist economists who basically mm. want to inflate the money supply to, for government to, um, if you like, tax you without you really understanding that you are having uh, your money debased um, mm -hmm. uh, by their, uh, you know, their exercising their seniorage. Right. No, we certainly saw that. Um, the governments, uh, they, they, how does it happen then, Alistair? You know, you, you talk about this, times were pretty good. And did you have then uh, uh, this egalitarian, uh, the income distribution during that period of time that you're talking about? How was that? And because, you know, we hear stories of, of poverty and, and, you know, in, in the literature and so forth about um, you know, all the poor people and the Industrial Revolution during uh, the people that, uh, the children that were working in factories and so forth, that's sort of what we hear about all the time, why you had to have government stepping in and, and making rules and, uh, and and taking over things, right? Isn't well, there, the, there does seem to be some justification for it at times, it seems. Yeah, the, the myth uh, about that is you're, you're comparing, and this, this is something everybody does, they compare... Uh, the time of Dickens, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, little boys being sent up chimneys and all the yeah. rest of it um, uh, with today. And obviously, uh, you know, we've progressed since then. And the idea of going back to that is is horrendous, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But the real comparison to make is what existed before the Industrial Revolution. The answer mm -hmm. is basically subsistence and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And um, 
the Industrial Revolution, uh, uh, plus the, uh, and particularly the removal of um, uh, tariffs on corn, on imported corn, which meant that corn prices fell, food prices fell. Uh, it meant that people had, you know, not only not only could they go and work in a factory and earn some money to pay for their bread, their mm -hmm. daily bread, but they also had a little bit of a surplus so they could go and buy clothes, they could buy other things. And that mm -hmm. led to the uh, construction of more factories to satisfy this, this demand. I mean, yes, there were some very wealthy people, um, but uh, the, the living standards of the ordinary person improved immeasurably over that period. So mm -hmm. the idea that deflation is bad for um, you know the lower classes or the disadvantaged is is uh, baloney, quite frankly. Well, I guess it's uh, that the average people probably don't make the connections between the free markets and their well-being. Uh, it certainly isn't taught in our schools in the United States. If anything, our people are being taught that socialism is the way you get the way you, the way you do better, and and certainly the government uh, runs all the schools in the U.S. Even the universities, the private universities, the government has its heavy hand in the in what is taught, and uh, and the professors that are teaching it are all far far left of center of anything close to free market economics. So people seem to be to be taught the propaganda seems to have everybody believing that government must get involved huh? uh, yes that's absolutely right um, I mean the whole thing about socialism is that somebody else um, you know will provide for you yeah. and uh, you know that route eventually leads to bankruptcy and I mean we can see that uh, the effect if you like of the accumulation of, of debt uh, which will never be repaid uh, is, is testament to the fact that pursuing that course eventually ends in the most appalling crisis. And that's really where we're headed. And this is a subject I know you and I have discussed, and I'm sure you have discussed with a lot of your other, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, the, the other people that you've invited onto your show. Mm -hmm. um, the point, I think, the, the simple point is that inflation is something that governments want not what you and I want. What right. you and I want is a better standard of living and lower prices, as long <laughs> as lower prices do not threaten our um, ability to earn. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is sorted out by free markets without any difficulty whatsoever. I mean, if you have pure free markets, you don't have unemployment. Mm -hmm. uh, Alistair, in your article, you say it's, it's preposterous to think that deflation can take place at a time during a period of accelerating monetary growth. And I would say, I would ask you though, um, 2008, 2009, we certainly saw a very brief period of deflation, I think, price, uh, price collapses uh, across the board pretty much uh, because of the debt implosion. So is it your contention that you won't see that for any length of time or that, or that you can't see it at all? It's, it's my contention that you won't see it for any length of time. And that uh -huh. was proved by um, the time that you refer to. Yeah. I mean, prices, prices did fall because suddenly we had this enormous financial crisis. Uh -huh. There's far too much um, uh, production going on, uh, which was only justified by uh, increased consumer debt, if you like. And when mm -hmm. that sort of suddenly was threatened, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, manufacturers started just basically dumping uh, 
uh, inventory because, you know, they needed, if you like, to have the cash rather than inventory. So, yes, prices were cut. But that that was a very, very brief moment. And uh, so far as I recall, it didn't really last beyond about two or three months. In, mm-hmm. in, in reality, I know it lasted slightly longer statistically. Mm-hmm. But uh, another way to look at it is just 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 imagine for a moment that uh, you're in Germany in uh, 1921, 22, 23. Mm-hmm. What you see is increased poverty and at the same time rising prices. And it mm-hmm. is only um, around about May 1923 that the average German suddenly realized that what was happening was that the purchasing power of the mark was diminishing. It wasn't a question of prices rising. And it was at that stage that the average German started really dumping money as quickly as he got paid it. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if you were earning, um, you, you, you would get paid in cash by your employer and you would immediately run out and buy anything whether you needed it or not, just to get rid of the money. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this led to the sort of stories like uh, someone left a wheelbarrow full of, <laughs> full of um, uh, you know, billion mark notes um, outside the shop as he went in. And when he came out, he found the money was on the floor, but the wheelbarrow had been stolen. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. get, dump money for goods. That's, that's the thing. So quite obviously, you had the characteristics of an economy which was failing which is what the inflationists say deflation is, at the time when the purchasing power of the paper currency was actually collapsing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, so we had this brief, this brief period of time, very brief, as you suggested, only about three months. Um, aren't we perhaps in a position where something like that could happen again? Well, it could, but it would be very, very, uh, it would be very short. I mean, for example, if we have another banking crisis, which I would have thought there's a very uh, strong possibility, uh, then we we would get the similar sort of panic. Um, but you and I know what will happen. The central banks, uh, they're already doing it, actually, ahead of this happening with repos and all the rest of it. And um, uh, the ECB doing QE and the Bank of Japan is thinking of doing QE. You, you know, they're already printing the money to stop it happening. But assuming yes. it happens, we'll have that brief moment of thinking, oh, my goodness me. Um, you know, we, we, we must stop buying things, you know, just just until it sorts out or um, until I'm certain that I've got my deposits in the bank and they're safe. I mean, the interesting thing is that very few people actually have uh, significant deposits in the bank. It's all in the hands of uh, major corporations, um, large uh, foreign entities, uh, and, um, you know, the providers of credit services. So um, the deposits are not really the individual. The individual, something like 80% of them are living paycheck to paycheck. And that means... And that means from, you know, we've got a, um, a credit cards to pay uh, on day one. And by the time we get to day 30, we're up to our maximum limit on the credit cards. So, right. you know, they don't actually have any savings. It's just a question of, of operating within a debt ceiling, oh. uh, which, which changes the characteristics, I think, of uh, what's um, happening on the price front 
um, uh, relative to money. I mean, money creates uh, uh, an effect on prices. It, uh, it creates an effect on the psychology of people. And mm -hmm. it's the combination of uh, changes in the quantity of money and the psychological impact that actually leads to changes in the general level of prices. All right, I'd like to uh, quote you in your January 30th article as estimating the shape of the coming crisis. You state, and I quote, estimating the shape, uh, you say, um, with a recession becoming increasingly certain and the end of an expansionary phase of the credit cycle in sight, we can expect a periodic systemic crisis to be upon us soon. The question arises as to how serious it will be given that despite the massive injections of extra base money since the Lehman crisis, signs of liquidity shortages are already re-emerging in financial markets, end of quote. And I noticed this morning, Alistair, a couple of, a couple of um, news stories that I read. One, it seems as though this uh, repo crisis is not going away. Uh, there was a, a report this morning that the Fed had to inject another $94.5 billion into the markets today. Uh, and then I read another article that says banks are tightening credit cards, auto loans, uh, and standard as a commercial industrial loan demand is declining. And so banks are also um, tightening credit, uh, credit cards and auto, loan, auto loans, uh, auto loan credit. What do you make of that, those, those two news items? Um, it doesn't surprise me. And um, I mean, starting with the repo uh, situation. Uh -huh. I mean, I've got uh, the figures up in front of me and uh, the sort of the daily ro rollover, uh, you're looking at $64.5 billion huh. and looking mm -hmm. at the longer term. So we're looking at, uh, uh, you know, 14 days mm -hmm. and uh, nine days. Um, that's another $59 uh, billion. Um, uh -huh. Well, that was submitted, of which 30 was accepted. So, huh. um, you know, it is actually increasing. Now, we'll see what the say, you know, what the figure is tomorrow and the day after. But this is something of a crisis, I think. So um, there is no doubt that uh, even though the Fed will not call it QE, uh, the Fed is having to inject money into the monetary system in order to stop interest rates rising, which mm -hmm. actually tells us something else. With what's going on, interest rates should be higher mm -hmm. than the Fed funds rate. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something which uh, is worth bearing in mind. Mm -hmm. um, as to the, as to your question about banks tightening their lending requirements and all the rest of it, I, I would see this as quite natural at this stage of the credit cycle. Um, at this stage of the credit cycle, we are entering the crisis phase. Now, the bankers basically create the crisis phase by no longer being prepared to lend. And that is precisely what we're seeing with the tightening of credit on consumers. What we're not seeing, uh, though undoubtedly it is happening, is they're also tightening on businesses. I mean, I'm not talking about the big businesses, but if you look at the medium and small enterprises, which make 80% of any economy, you will find that those that uh, have a working capital requirement, uh, the banks will be leaning on them, trying to reduce that or indeed to uh, uh, remove it altogether. So it would seem to me that this is confirmation uh, that we are entering that crisis phase. Right. Okay, so wh what should we be doing? I mean, wh how should we be preparing for this, Alistair? Because, I mean, the equity markets right now today, I didn't check uh, since I went on the show, but they were on a tear. Uh, yeah. 
Donald Trump has everybody believing that um, he's the best thing since since I don't know what since um, yeah now, so yeah since it, I mean isn't that the most extraordinary thing we have this uh, coronavirus which is shutting down China and therefore taking a large uh, chunk out of uh, uh, economic performance overall global the global economy that is likely to spread to other countries and is showing signs of already doing so i mean this is a really serious thing and what mm -hmm. happens you know equity markets go through the roof this to me uh, uh, stinks of a combination of um, uh, enormous investor complacency uh -huh. and and government ma manipulation of markets. I mean, we've seen that the Chinese authorities are trying hard to stop their market from sliding, the Shanghai Composite from sliding. Um, we haven't seen signs necessarily of the US government doing the same, but I believe that they are doing the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, because they have tied uh, the performance of financial assets to um, uh, the economic outlook and uh, therefore their currencies. And when you tie these two things together, as I argue later in, in, uh, that, in the second article mm -hmm. that you refer to, uh, you end up with uh, the John Law uh, Mississippi bubble right, situation right, right. where both financial assets and the currency collapse at the same time. That yeah. is the risk we now face, rather yeah. than, let us say, the uh, uh, German uh, 1920 to 23 situation, right. which everybody, I think, expects. Right. Well, uh, you know, it's a, one of the issues uh, that you talk about is the idea that the dollar could lose, uh, that people could lose confidence in the dollars and, and uh, as a world's reserve currency. And frankly, when I mention that to most people, they think that's the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard. Uh, and we don't have time to talk about that today. You and I have talked about it in the past. There's a good scenario, I think, uh, not a good one. There is a, a realistic scenario in which that could happen. We don't have time to talk about it today. We are basically out of time, Alistair. Thank you so much for being with us. But people, go to goldmoney.com, read Alistair's article, and there you'll get the story. You'll understand why these things are the way they are and why you shouldn't count on the dollar being the world's reserve currency forever. Thank you so much for being with us, Alistair, and we'll look to do it again uh, real soon. Well, folks, that is it for this week. Next week, Jim Rogers will be my guest. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Lion One Metals, one of 2019's top performing gold stocks, is geared for aggressive growth in 2020. With drilling underway and its fully permitted high-grade Tuvatu Gold Project in Fiji, one of the last high-grade gold deposits of its kind anywhere in the world, now owned by a major gold mining company, Lion One trades in the USA on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF and in Canada under LIO on the TSXV. To learn more about Lion One's world-class high-grade gold potential in Fiji, go to liononemetals.com.